Hi, everybody. I'm Michael <laughs> Bailey of Views from the Long Box, and this week appearing on Amazing Spider-Man Classics. You know, there's a lot of talk on the internet out there about abuse against women. And there's a lot of talk about it amongst comic book fans, too, especially about Hank Pym, who's a dirty, dirty wife beater. Well, I'm just here to say that domestic abuse is no laughing matter. But in comic books, it's completely fair game. You can laugh about it all day long. Anytime a woman gets hit, you should have a little chuckle. And that's one to grow on. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another amazing episode of Amazing Spider-Man Classics. My name is John Wilson, and this is going to be episode 11 of the show. Here in the studio with me is Joshua Bertoni. How did I get in this studio? I teleported you. And Donovan Grant. I thought that's a Studio 54. And the cocaine's better here. <laughs> and joining us uh, for these next couple of episodes, all the way from Views from the Long Box and FortressOfBailitude.com, we welcome Michael Bailey. Hello. Yay. Sorry, I, I, was, I was doing the coke off of some naked girls behind, so. I can hear since, her in the background. Since we're here in Studio 54, I figured, you know, everything goes. Uh, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, it wasn't a bad ever. movie. It was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. So I saw it in the theater, oddly enough. But I don't I'm know if anybody. I know what you're talking about. I, I have no clue. The Studio 54 movie that came out in the late 90s. That, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that had Mike Myers as the owner and the uh, Ryan Phillippe as the small town boy that becomes a waiter there, and his life turns upside down. So okay, yeah, that was like during a three or four year period where there was like a bunch of disco movies because you had Boogie Nights, or as I like to call. Call it a screen full of <laughs> and uh, last days of disco. I need to see that because it's got Robert Sean Leonard in it, and I like him. Oh, but I'm very happy to be here. I'm sorry that it took so much scheduling nightmares to get me here, but I'm very happy to be here. Well, you know, we all have lives, and no one's paying us to do this, so I was, I'm not stressing about it. I'm glad that we're here, but yeah, the episodes are running just a little bit late this month, folks, because um, the four of us have very different lifetime schedules, and so it took a while to get us all together. I want to extend some thank yous. I want to uh, mention Brad Douglas was here with us last episode, and want to remind you again that he runs a very awesome website with an awesome podcast at spidermancrawlspace.com of which Mr. Bailey is also a part. Oh man, I was about to say never heard of it, but <laughs> <laughs> you, you screwed up my joke. That's fine. And I do just, you know, out of my own sense of ego, have to mention that I will be soon posting reviews on that website of various Spider-Man miniseries that are going on. I am the miniseries man now. So Black Cat, here I come. Michael Bailey is one of those guys who is slowly becoming a gravity node in the podcasting world. Uh, <laughs> can you uh, go ahead and just take a few minutes, tell the listeners about all the stuff that you do out there? Well, uh, first podcast, main podcast that I'm kind of behind on now, unfortunately, that I started up back in 2007 is called Views from the Long Box. It started out as a 20 to 30 minute weekly show where I would just come on and yak about some random comic and has morphed into these 16, 17 hour episodes, it seems, because <laughs> apparently I just can't shut up. Last year, around May of 2009, I started.
started up From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast with my good friend Jeffrey Taylor, who was on the show a couple episodes back. Uh, had the idea to do the podcast, knew I couldn't do it alone and maintain, you know, keep keep it up. And thankfully, Jeffrey uh, accepted my request and... We've been doing that for over a year now, and that's been going pretty well. And I'm really enjoying it, by the way. I appreciate that. Later last year, I met Scott Gardner. I was on his show, Back to the Bins, little knowing that about six, uh, four or five months later, I would actually be co-hosting the show with him. But before that, we started up Tales of the Justice Society of America, where we started with All-Star Comics number 58 and moved forward, talking about just about every Earth 2 and JSA-related story we could get our hands on. Uh, right now, we're in the midst of the All-Star Squadron and enjoying the heck out of that. I, I still maintain that that's the show we wanted to do in the first place, but we just had to get that other stuff out of the way. It's been <laughs> it's been an interesting ride. The All-Star, I can tell why you were excited about All-Star Squadron, because once we got to that series and I started reading it, I was like, yes, this is what I it, thought we were going to be doing in the first place. And in between all that, Brad asked me to be one of the panelists on the Spider-Man Crawl Space. I have a, I have a spot on the Radio KAL monthly podcast that the Superman homepage does. It's called Bailey's Bookshelf, where I talk about... Uh, a random Superman trade hardcover or novel uh, Fortress of Bailey 2 by the time I think this is this episode should be out has been repurposed and is going to be a daily Superman blog again which is what it started out to be <laughs> and uh, somewhere in all that I have a wife a dog a job and I sleep and uh, the sleep is usually the last on the list of things to do unfortunately you forgot your uh, <laughs> Professor Bailey segments on Starkville's oh, yes. House of L. yes the uh, Know Your Comic segment on Starkville's House of L, which will hopefully get a little more regular as the next season rolls on. That was me trying to find time to get that done, but it's been a lot of fun. You know, it's for Big Honk and Steve, and I can't just, I can't say no to him, because he's uh, such a good friend, so. Well, good deal. It's lot, lots of lots of good stuff out there, uh, and Michael knows his stuff, especially when it comes to DC, and especially with a capital, especially when it comes to Superman. So, uh, if any of those projects sound appealing to you, I highly recommend checking them out. And how did you get into comics in general, and, and particularly Spider-Man? Well, I remember when I was in the first grade, the school library had these two books called from Superman from the 30s to the 70s and Batman from the 30s to the 70s. And those were reprints obviously from the 30s to the 70s uh, of Batman and Superman books and those were the first comics I read but I'd always been into superheroes uh, you know I, I was born in 76 so I was two years old when Superman the movie came out the super friends were in heavy rotation on, not only on Saturday morning but in syndication the Batman series from the 60s was in heavy rotation on, in syndication there was an incredible Hulk TV series going on that I was a very big fan of even though I would run out of the room whenever he would start changing because I didn't like that for some reason. I was like 10 years old <laughs> before I actually watched Bill Bixby turn into Lou Ferrigno. It's and, the stories I hear about Doctor Who fans who hide behind the couch whenever Daleks come out. Anyways, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I was a big fan of the Hulk. I was the big fan of Superman. I was mainly a Batman fan, oddly enough. And mm -hmm. through the early to mid-80s, I would pick up comics every once in a while. I remember I got an issue of Marvel Saga number 2 which was this really interesting project that Marvel did where they told in chronological order the history of Marvel Comics with text and panels from the various comics. But what they did was they would show you like the 60s 
panels, but then show you the retcons that they threw in along the way. That's Ooh, the only good series. I have that. Yeah, I read the first couple issues. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, I found them really cheap, thankfully, a couple years ago, but I also bought the Essentials, which probably would be the easiest way to find them. And the reason I bought that, or I had that bought for me, was it had the Hulk on the cover. And because it was like, you know, I was a child of the 80s, I read issues of Transformers. And Christmas 85, I got this big box of comics that the Sears catalog used to offer every year. Uh, But I really didn't start collecting comics seriously until 1987 when I picked up Superman number eight and Action Comics number 591. And from then until very recently, I collected the Superman books. So Super- from 87 to 2010, that's that was the main thing I read. And now that's printed um, on a headstone. <laughs> And uh, I was, I've been mainly a DC, I've been mainly a DC fan since then, but I've always had a, a a fondness for Marvel. I was never one of those people that had the Jets versus Sharks mentality that you can only be a DC fan or a Marvel fan. Spider Man. First thing I remember of Spider Man is uh, kind of like Brad, the Electric Company he was on, and then. When I was a little older, Spider-Man and his amazing friends came on Saturday mornings, and that was just like the show I wanted to watch, especially after the Hulk started up in like 1982. And that kind of introduced me to a little bit of the larger Marvel Universe as well, especially with episodes with the Hulk and the Seven Little Superheroes. A couple years later, during this thing that I still am kind of baffled by existing called Bowling for Dollars, okay, which was, was this local thing where people would call in and the person would bowl a bowling ball, and depending on how many pins got knocked down is how much they won. But surrounding this, they would have different weeks of themes. And one week they showed all of the live action Spider-Man episodes. Oh, wow. And when you're a kid, it's cool. When you watch it now, it's kind of god awful. But <laughs> I like it. <laughs> For what, it, what it's uh, worth. There's, there's, there's uh, some episodes are definitely better than the uh, than others. I will say. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was never really a big fan of the, of the comics. I would read an issue here or there. I remember reading a couple issues of Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man right after Peter David left. Uh, Not that I knew that at the time. And I was like the only kid in my high school that was not reading the Todd McFarlane Spider-Man because I was too busy being into Superman. So but I remember those that that time period very vividly. I decided to start reading Spider-Man in 1998 with chapter one. and. I knew you guys were going to laugh at this, that, but that's when I jumped on. I'm like, okay, this is the, it was a it was a very purposeful jumping on point for new readers. Well, I imagine and, John Byrne's name was kind of like a magnet. I thought, I thought yeah, I was yeah, that too. I mean, it's like Spider-Man Chapter One. I loved Man of Steel. This seemed like a a, a match made in heaven. And I I remember not liking it at the time. I, I've recently reacquired them very cheaply. Because uh, Marvel is never going to put that out to a trade paperback. They put out Clone Saga. They'll put out anything now. Nope. <laughs> well, they they put out Captain America: Fighting Chance Volume One and Two. So yeah, they're going to put out anything. If they're going to put out the money. <laughs> the Captain America in his armor, yeah, what? they'll probably put it out at some point. They'll do but, uh, uh, Spider-Man Visionaries. John Byrne. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. And I read the 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 two series, Spider Man and Peter Parker's uh, Spider Man, and I just I didn't like it. It didn't appeal to me. There was something missing from it, especially in the first few issues when he wasn't even Spider Man. And I dropped the books in short order. And then I remember buying the first few issues of JMS's run and, and liking that. And and here's the the next part where you guys are gonna laugh at me. I dropped the I dropped the title for a while and came in at the other. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But pretty much since then, I've been reading the Spider-Man books uh, for at first for my own personal amusement. And now that I'm part of the spider panel, I, 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 I don't want to say I pretty much have to, cause it makes it seem like I don't want to be on the show, but cause I do, but sometimes it's like, God, I, I, I pretty much just have to read these issues because <laughs> yeah, not nah, uh, hit and miss is putting, is being very charitable uh, for it. And, you know, and I reviewed the title for a little while there, which is why I started reading it again. And I just couldn't devote the time to reviewing a weekly book with everything else i'm doing so. i remember see i'm i'm going through the backlog of crawl space podcasts and i'm i'm just after you came on the show and you've been mostly positive so far in the first few books that you reviewed um so I, i'll be curious to see how your opinions change over what is now the last year oh uh, yeah just get just get to that issue where michelle punches him in the face and hear me have a freaking conniption oh god <laughs> What favorite. number is that? Just so I know. It was like five oh three. It's the October. It's the October uh, episode. Okay, I just finished listening to August. Actually, I'm still yeah, listening I, to August. I, I had a yeah, I had a serious problem with that. Okay. I still have a serious problem with that. that Interesting. That became the basis of me of of issues I don't like. So, but but I oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm just gonna say because I've liked most of what I've read. Um, some to a lesser degree than others, but I've heard about a lot of things that have happened over the last year that I shake my head at. So I'm, I had to read the stories for myself to form an opinion, but, um, but yeah, I mean, Spider-Man, definitely my top five of Marvel characters, uh, probably in at number three, uh, right below the Hulk and Captain America. He's a great character. He's a character I wish, I think on some alternate Earth, instead of picking up uh, Superman, I picked up Spider-Man. I, I just I just have that feeling that, like, on Earth-616, there's a, there, there's a Mike doing a From Marriage to Mephisto podcast uh, for Spider-Man. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny. Now that you said that, somebody's going to start a podcast called From Marriage to Mephisto. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you. We're happy to have you, Mike. Thank you for joining us tonight. <laughs> I appreciate that, guys. I'm happy to be here. So, Tales to Astonish 57 was released on April 2nd, 1964, which is actually just a week before Spider-Man 14, the Green Goblin book that we did last episode. So we're doing this a little bit out of order, but that's okay. Uh, Michael Bailey is going to tell us about this book. Well, we have a cover by Jack Kirby and Chick Stone, which is actually a pretty cool cover of, of, of Spider-Man's yellow webbing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no idea why it's yellow. Other than that, it's a pretty cool cover of Spider-Man kind of hoisting Giant Man into the air as these uh, cops and a bystander are looking on. And after, um, and after an ad featuring Pac-Man's father... And, and and how he earned his money uh, to launch the Pac-Man Empire. God, that ad is creepy. <laughs> what is? Oh man, I gotta I gotta stop looking at it. It's staring at me. We get to on the trail <laughs> of the Amazing Spider-Man featuring Giant Man and the Wonderful Wasp. And 
Not one to ter- uh, to shy away from hyperbole. I will read the credits. Brilliantly written by good old Stan Lee. Bashfully drawn by lovable old Dick Ayers. Boldly inked by faithful old Paul Reinman. And bravely lettered by fearless old S. Rosen. We open on the giant on Giant Man rushing into his lab to show his main squeeze and horrendously vapid girlfriend, the Wasp. <laughs> the new weapon he designed for her. Because, you know, she, he comes in, he's like, I got something for you. And she says, tell me, Hank, is it perfume, a fur, jewelry? <sighs> Anyways, it turns out that it is a stinger of sorts that fits on her wrist and fires concentrated bursts of air. How? It's I an air gun. It's an, yeah, because that's going to be effective in a fight. Meanwhile, the villain known as Egghead oh, believes God. the time has come to strike back against Ant-Man. Egghead has worked out a device that will allow him to talk to ants as well as Ant-Man, and he sends a false message to Hank and Jan that Spider-Man has been sighted and wants to attack and defeat Giant-Man. Giant-Man gets the message, and for some bizarre reason, he sends Jan to find Spider-Man, but, only, but warns to only spot Webhead and then report back he just it's like he wants to fight me you go find him (laughs) and then tell me about it and i'll be right there uh jan (laughs) jan does so happily and soon enough she finds spider-man and gives him a little sting with her new weapon to slow him down unfortunately the blast was a little too strong and soon spider-man is plummeting to the ground Spider-Man is one pissed wall crawler, and after saving himself, he senses that a small insect is attacking him and sprays out some web, which catches Jan. Jan calls for help, and in short order, Giant Man is coming to her rescue. When he finds Spider-Man, he tells our hero that he better not have hurt Jan, to which Spider-Man replies, What the hell are you talking about? (laughs) Actual dialogue, I assume. (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, Egghead watches and puts the second phase of his plan into action. He assembles his men and then places an anonymous tip to the police that Giant Man and Spider-Man are fighting. The cops show up as the fight just starts getting good, and we have a pretty typical Marvel fight from the 60s as the two heroes taunt each other as they duke it out. Spider-Man swings up to a rooftop and pretty much dares Giant Man to chase him. Giant Man takes the bait, and the cops call in for backup since, as one officer says, anything can happen when Spider-Man Spider-Man and Giant Man are fighting. <laughs> because this is Anything. so commonplace, right? Yeah. At this point, Egghead enacts his amazing plan to, get this, knock over a payroll truck. <laughs> the job is going, oh, it's like this Rube Goldberg way of getting a, <laughs> a, 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 a payroll truck. It really is. Okay, I'm going to have Spider-Man fight Giant Man, and then I'm going to call the police, and then this bowling ball is going to go along the the, uh, the edge. It's going to fall down. It's going to hit a seesaw, which is going <laughs> to knock the payroll truck over the, over the bridge, and then we're going to go in and get it. Well, it could have been worse, Mike. He could have pulled them all to all Hollywood first. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking that. Just and now. then a ten-hour like... drive to freaking Arizona <laughs> <laughs> to fight in the desert before they get the payroll truck. <laughs> the job is going okay, all things considered. But when the cops spot them, Egghead and his men, call goes out for a roadblock, and one of the cops wonders if Giant Man and Spider Man are in on this. And you can just know that that man has a subscription to the Daily Bugle. As Egghead and crew get back to their hideout, Spider Man and Giant Man realize that they had been had, but not before Jan thinks about how much Hank must care for her to fight so fiercely in her defense. Hank gets word from his ant agents about where Egghead is, and somehow they use Spider Man's spider spence to figure it out too. And the three heroes hightail it to Egghead's hideout with 
Hank assuming the role of Ant-Man. As Egghead and his gang unload the loot, Spider-Man appears and takes the payroll away from him. Jan lends a hand and nearly gets stepped on and swatted with a newspaper, but manages to get away thanks to her stingers, which, much like Spider-Man's uh, web cartridges, uh, she only has a few left. She calls for Hank but to make his... it's air. I know, right? <laughs> How is she running out of air? Is it like a cartridge-based thing, or...? I'm, I'm assuming so. I'm assuming it's like, you know, the, like canned air. She needs to get like, some bigger he just, he just gave her a toy to appease her. It doesn't <laughs> do anything. With it in the car on the way home, so it's actually half empty before he even gives it to her. <laughs> he was tired after all their battles. You know, they'd be on there, I want to have a weapon. I want one. Make, make it this. So he's like, uh, he, he like pulled something random out of his lab. Here, Janet, this is a stinger. It shoots air, but it's, be careful. It's super deadly. <laughs> God. So Jan calls for Hank and to make his presence known, and suddenly Giant Man is in the thick of the battle. The gang pig piles onto Hank, which seemingly allows Egghead to get the drop on the Giant One, but Spider-Man bails him out. Egghead tries to bribe the heroes, but that doesn't go too well, and the bad guys are let off to jail. Spider-Man says he'll be going now, since they don't need him, and the Wasp, for some odd reason, snaps that they never needed him in the first place. Spider-Man leaves after calling her a crazy bitch. Okay, <laughs> not really, but that's must that's what he must have been thinking. And after he leaves, Jan starts getting really irrational about Spider-Man, but Hank counters that he was a rather handy person to have around. Jan continues to cl- complain, and Hank gives her a good pimp-handed backslap to shut her <laughs> up. And then they get back about their... Well, okay, that doesn't happen either. <laughs> but you know, no, he... to end the recap with, and then he took her home and beat her senseless. <laughs> <laughs> he's just stockpiling bitterness that he's going to let out in 1975, whatever year that was. That's only, that's only the Mary Marvel gang can tell you. <laughs> and and here is how the fight ended. And now here is how the fight would have ended if Hank went home and irrationally beat his wife. <laughs> is this because I didn't have the dinner on? Is this because I used my stinger when you told me not to? Yes, that was how this whole battle started. A whole truck was hijacked because you were st- a stupid woman with no patience. Oh dear. Before dear. we get into our, uh, our, our notes for this issue, I do want to... Uh, introduce my daughter again for those of you who've been listening for a few episodes she came on a few episodes back uh she decided to select this issue for her interview this month and uh here she is my daughter lily i like giant man but i think i like the wasp more than giant man i don't really think that giant man's powers are very interesting if i had seen this comic on the shelf i probably would have just bought it for spider-man i think the wasp is really really super girly in a bad way and in a good way. My favorite part of the story was at the end when the wasp said, I got news for you, son. We never did need you. It's really silly that wasps doesn't like Spider-Man just because wasps and spiders are natural enemies. Egghead is not really that dangerous of a villain because really, he's just... A mirror of Hank Pym being like smart and all, copying his inventions. I think Giant Man did kind of deserve a place on the Avengers as like the brains. I think the best Spider Man part was when he um, almost dropped that big box and all of the criminals. This was the very first appearance of the Wasp Sting. I like that. This kind of gives Wasp, like, more of a defense. An offense. 
so she's not just this girl flying all over the place trying to punch people in the nose. My name is Lily. I'm eight years old, and I return you to the rest of the show. Um, how do I turn this thing off? So that is she. And um, what did y'all think about this issue? All things considered, this is it's just a fairly typical Marvel book from this time period. This this type of story was never really done over at DC, where you know two heroes would just show up and there's a misunderstanding and they would start fighting. I don't dislike it, but I definitely would not put it up as like one of the best of this era. No, the art's actually pretty good. I was I was rather impressed with the art. Dick Ayers does a very good Spider-Man in places. It, it kind of foreshadows a little bit of Ross Andrew. I thought. Yeah, I like. Uh, I, I actually. Um... There's a zoom in on his face, uh, page four, whenever the wasp is about to zap him. And it's the first time we've ever actually gotten, like, nose and cheekbone definition on his mask. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 you're right. That's a that's a great image. Uh, other than that, this is a goofy damn story. It, it's all hinged on Egghead having this miraculous plan to get back a giant man so that he can pull off a heist. But it's such a mundane heist. It's not like he's he's planning to steal some government secret project weapon, whatever, and sell it to the commies because, well, that was Stanley's move back then. <laughs> uh, no, he's gonna he's gonna rob a payroll truck. He's gonna rob a payroll truck in front of the cops. Thinking, <laughs> well, they're, gonna be, they're gonna be too busy watching the two heroes fight. I'll just rob it over here. Genius. <laughs> I, I was never a bit really a big fan of Giant Man and, and the Wasp, anyways. So that really didn't <laughs> this didn't improve my my opinion of them. And the thing is, and I, I may have said this in the past episode, is that at this time in Marvel's history, Amazing Spider-Man and Fantastic Four are a lot of times the exception to the rule as far as the quality of Marvel stories. They're mm-hmm. they're the cream of the crop. They're the really good stuff, and there's a lot of really wonky Iron Man and really weird Giant Man going on at the same time. I was about to say because like when the doing the past issue with the Human Torch, uh, I think that was a Strange Tales or Tales to Astonish, and then this one, it sounds as though like the main books, you know, straight superhero stuff with you know some human elements into it. But when you're like on the the satellite books, like this one, we have more than one hero on there. It's just like throw common sense and logic out the window, even more so than you do in the regular books. <laughs> Remember what I told you about the Human Torch's secret identity in Strange Tales, right? Oh Lord, oh Lord! <laughs> but you want to hear? You want to hear something really goofy about that that series, though? Eventually, Joe uh, Jerry Siegel would start writing it. Strange it's, Tales? Yes, he wrote for Marvel in the '60s, and he wrote uh, Strange Tales, and it's kind of weird that uh, he went to Glenville High School and the Human Torch lived in Glenville. That's actually really cool. <laughs> what did he write? Did he do the Doctor Strange strip or the... Uh... No, he did He did some Human Torch and he, I, I think he did some other, like, um, like that's some what... of their le- lesser-known titles. The Human but Torch strip became a Human Torch thing team-up strip after a, a little yeah. while. And uh, he wrote under another name, which which I can't remember right now. But eventually, he was just kind of bumped down to being a proofreader because his spirit was pretty much broken at this point. His writing wasn't all that good. Oh. So, but yeah, this, he, I, that, Marvel, that sounds really bad. Yeah, it, it was right after he had lost the second legal battle with DC over Superman because he wrote for Superman in in the fifties and sixties until uh, the copyright came up again and he lost in court and they fired him. So oh, that sucks. Wow, there's some bad history there. Speaking of sixties and copyright, 
I gotta ask, which came first, this Marvel version of Egghead or the 60s Batman show version of Egghead? Pretty sure it was this well, one. Yeah, the Batman show was 67, wasn't it? So, oh, premiered duh, in yeah. Premiered in oh, 66, yeah. Okay, we're That's 64 right. right now. Yeah, duh, yeah. So, page one, yeah, Janet's the real material girl there, isn't she? <laughs> Yes. This is why I hate when Stan Lee in his like revisionist interviews talks about, you know, oh, over in the competitors comics, the girlfriends were always just these sideline hostages, but I was putting them in the forefront of the battles. I was a real feminist for my time. (laughs) Really, Stan? No. Really, Stan? What did all the women in DC do? They were they were lawyers. And they were they owned companies, and they were reporters for major metro- metropolitan newspapers. All of your women were secretaries. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. No, no, I believe Betty you. Brant. And Bab, yeah. Bab started as a librarian, but didn't she become a senator in the 70s? Yes. Congresswoman. <laughs> and yes, Stanley's in the corner like, like, oh, I don't know. Ooh. And she dated Clark Kent when she was a congresswoman, weirdly enough. It was like two or three dates. Soccer blue. Oh, dear. Well, wouldn't you? <laughs> date Clark Kent or well, date... Did date Clark date Kent or Barbara Gordon? Barbara Gordon. <laughs> I don't like Superman that much. <laughs> <laughs> He's a man of steel. Um, <laughs> yeah. I still cry myself to sleep. <laughs> I thought that one cover... Okay, page two, he manages to point out while he's giving her the gun that basically up to this point, she's been a really sucky partner because all she's had is her small size going for her. And other than that, she's pretty much lame. That's what she said. Oh. Couldn't help myself. And the air gun, it kind of, I don't know, it's sort of a weird prom corsage looking thing. I don't know. It's just like on her, like she should be an action figure with a gun that attaches to her hand there. That's what it looks like. If we go with the idea that, okay, I'll give you a toy. I mean weapon. <laughs> it's an air gun. It gets pretty dumb though, right? On he gets introduced on page three. I I I've read this. I've read like one or two other egghead stories. I I have no interest in this guy at all. Yeah, is he like a, a Avengers villain, a FF villain? Because I've never heard of him. I before. think he's pretty much a Hank Pym villain. Yeah, he, you know, <laughs> Hank Pym did not have the most stellar rogues gallery. I didn't know he had a rogues gallery. <laughs> well, uh, actually, <laughs> Black Knight was his villain. Gallery. Who was? was that? The Black Knight was his villain. Yeah, the Black Knight. Uh, when it, the the evil uncle of the of the you know later Avenger Black Knight. Uh, whenever he was introduced as a Giant Man villain, and whenever he came onto the Masters of Evil, it was to fight Giant Man. So, for what that's worth, Black Knight. Do you ever think that that Cap, Thor, and Iron Man just laughed at Hank over his? Work? I was under the assumption that they always did. It's like, uh, isn't isn't Hank Pym the guy who's always like, I'm Ant Man? No, I'm Yellow Jacket. No, wait, 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 wait. I'm Giant Man. It's like he's. I know very very little about this character out of all the adventures, but um, he's he's that he's a guy he's on changing costumes and names. He's a guy who has a horrible reputation with women, <laughs> particularly well, li- his own wife. He, he only like hit her once, but it's followed him unfortunately. Yeah, he, he's not the only wife beater in the Marvel pantheon, but he's the only one who can't live it down. <laughs> well, well, I, okay, I, I, Flash Thompson. Oh, go ahead. No, I was I was just about to say it's one of my big pet peeves about fandom is that they'll latch on to something and they'll get this hive mind mentality about it. I am not in any way endorsing backhanding your wife just because you're having a rough time of it. But it's not like he hit her and then beat her and then shrunk her down and then beset ants on her. <laughs> I was just going to say, it sounds like you're talking about the Ultimates. And yes, you're talking about the Ultimates. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and unfortunately... Holy crap! 
And unfortunately, that characterization of Hank has kind of crept into the larger thinking of who the character is. Because, you know, Mm. he hit her and it was just once. And by that rationale, Peter Parker's a wife beater. Well, we're going to get to that next uh, CSC. The very next episode. Clone Saga Chronicles, yeah. (laughs) Throw it across the room. Y'all don't number... I was going to say what episode number is that, but y'all don't number your episodes. But yeah, Clone Saga Chronicles, upcoming episode, Peter Parker swats his pregnant wife across the room. It's titled, Peter Parker, Wife Beater? And I'm I'm just going to say this, yeah, you know, uh, and we'll discuss it more in the episode. There's the retcon that he didn't see her. I'm sorry. He saw her. He looked right at her and he said, get away from me. (laughs) Oh, I didn't see you there. (laughs) Okay. Flash Thompson also, okay, like, you know, like, Hank Pym couldn't live it down. Like, because somebody talked about when we were on the old uh, now defunct community scans daily. Flash Thompson was living with his girlfriend, Shashan. He cheated on her with a married woman, no less. When Shashan confronted him about it, he smacked her in the face when she tried to leave him. And then when she tried to leave him and got attacked by the hobgoblin and was put in the hospital, he went to see her in the hospital, only to yell at her for, why are you trying to leave me, when she's, like, on her deathbed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't see the reasoning there? Come on, man. He's just trying to You know, I mean, he's flat. All you got to do is make him lose some legs in Iraq, and he becomes a sympathetic character again. And she's his his physical therapist now. That's like, oh, that's got to be weird. Remember when you punched me in the face after cheating on me with that pregnant woman? <laughs> Give me another push-up. <laughs> <laughs> he feels oh, away. You, oh, you, I want, over you want this walker? You want this walker? Yeah, yeah. It's across the room. Go get it. <laughs> <laughs> she'll, she'll, like, drive him into the middle of, like, you know, like Harlem. <laughs> kick him out of the car without the wheelchair and drive off. <laughs> laughing maniacally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So on uh, on page uh, five, uh, Spider-Man's throwing some webs out, and Dick Ayers didn't get the memo, did he, on how the web shooters work? Because he just has his arms like sticking out there, like zombie style, and webs are just flying out of the palms. It's uh, it's, it's kind of like, funky. It's like the 70s show. Yeah, yeah, he could stick out his arm, and the web like looked like someone threw a net. Exactly, it's exactly what it looks like. Uh, Funny. That Maybe that's what they were using for research. <laughs> yeah, they went. They went. They went to the TARDIS and went to ten years later, and you know, watched Nick Hammond hamming up. It's the Doctor and Peter Parker in the TARDIS. Um, I love that show. I, I mean, I, I know it gets a lot of crap, and it, it really does suck, but I find it fun. Which it's one? The seventies uh, Spider-Man show. Well, the one where we played its porn intro theme music when we t- were talking about Betty Brand Peter. I, I, the- I don't think so much that it's it's a bad TV show, especially when you compare it to other comic book related, uh, you know, telemovies and series at the time. Captain America, excuse me. It, it, it just it missed the boat on the emotional underpinnings of the character. Right, it basically exactly. just turns Spider-Man into a typical action hero of the of the 70s who would fight ninjas and 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 just you know guys in turtlenecks you know episode after episode or 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 you know like people who want to set off a bomb on campus or people that want to clone him (laughs) there's a clone saga story for you (laughs) i love the cover that's my favorite episode either i'm you i'm you you're me and (laughs) yes it's a gun I'm thinking with your mind. I'm every, one step ahead of you, every step of the way. Now put your mask on. Let's go out and get some air. 
<laughs> That's my favorite episode. It's I've like totally lost all reference. I, is this the cartoon we're talking about now? No, it's a live action series. Okay, I I haven't I haven't seen all of it, and I haven't seen any of it as an adult. It was all on rerun. Evil Ben Riley. That's all I'm saying. Really? Oh yes. So, do you think they were actually deliberately trying to bring the Jerry Conway elements into the show? Is that why they're doing that? No, I I think that the. Conway run was just like so no. that that clone story was so obscure even no, for back then. No, I, I think I think it was just like an evil clone episode. But no, they they did try to kind of bring the seventies era supporting cast. Because Glory Grant was in it, wasn't she? Was she Glory Grant? Was she just like you know random black supporting actor? Actually, that's uh, that's Tootie's mom of all things. Facts of life. Oh yeah, like, it is. Yeah. Tootie's mom, but Kim Fields or Kim Fields' mom, and I can't believe it's I knew the actress's name. Yeah, Kim Fields. It was Chip Fields. Yes. Get all an amazing Spider-Man classics. <laughs> A little bit about um superhero versus superhero fights you know marvel versus dc but i don't know i mean giant man swings down to spider-man it's like release her spider-man talking about the wasp let's see how brave you are against someone like me giant oh, man. man i don't know what's going on here but if it's a fight you want you've come to the right guy and it's just like <laughs> let's get a measuring stick out and this doesn't really do anything for me because it makes them both look stupid nobody beats my girlfriend but me <laughs> Talk I about have a part. note that says hilarious foreshadowing, and I'm looking over those first few pages, and I can't imagine I, – I, I don't remember why I wrote this note, but apparently there's one line in the first few pages of the story that I thought was just hilarious foreshadowing. I must have been high. He must have, he must have said to um, you know Janet, someday, Janet, bang, boom, to the moon, or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> How many Janet gets beaten jokes are we going to make? A whole lot. As many as we can muster. Is it, I don't you know, know. How many times is Hank going to hit her? <laughs> We, we go for the easy easy jokes here. We have, we have no shame. Do you think that Stanley wrote an actual crossover between Spider-Man and Gi- Giant Man with the personalities of the characters intact in different books? Or was it just, hey, let's put Spider-Man against uh, Giant Man, have him fight, you know, without really thinking about how the characters would react in the situation separately? Do you think that was there was any of that at all? See, it, it's, it's hard to say what exactly was going through Stan's mind, and possibly because this was the 60s and there might have been some other things going through Stan's mind. But... Um, <laughs> And it, I shouldn't probably say that because I don't want to give disrespect to Stan, but... The guy who wrote back to his show. Dick Ayers did the plotting for this. I mean, they would talk about the plot, but Dick Ayers would actually tell the story with the pictures. Stan just came along and did the dialogue. So you'd think, as the man who was writing all of the characters, he would keep the characterization consistent, but he really doesn't. So I don't know what to say to that. Elsa's book, he's very much more um, antagonistic and standoffish and just mean than he usually is. Yeah, which, like, you see well, some of it in his main book. He's antisocial in general. Yeah, as we've been doing this show, I've been thinking more and more about that, that maybe Stan was intentionally doing that because Peter just doesn't know how to be friendly to people he doesn't know, especially whenever they first show up and well, say, hey, yeah. I'm going to punch you. Yeah, I was, I was about to say that you guys have been talking about that a lot on the show, about, you know, how almost what I was getting from the conversation is that Peter kind of brings it on himself. And to a certain extent, I can I, I can agree with that. I can see what you're saying, because I, I feel the same way about Daniel in the first Karate Kid movie, that maybe if he would have just kind of kept his head down, he, they might not mm. have beat him up as much. But... I have a feeling that Peter Parker was picked on from the time he was a little kid all the way up into high school. And, you know, just because they decide to be nice to him once, you know, he he's probably in the back of my mind, his mind thinking, well, this is a setup and I'm just going to be the butt of the joke again. So I don't, I don't blame him for being a jerk. I really yeah. don't. 
We did an episode of Teenage Wasteland earlier today where we were talking about a couple episodes of Ultimate Spider-Man. And there's a scene where Kong walks up to Peter and says, hey, have you seen Flash? And Peter's like, well, let me check my underwear. No atomic budgie, so no, Flash must not be around. And it's just like, that's that's the kind of relationship they must have, they've always had in that book. And I, you know, I wonder if that's the same in this book, too. Uh, you mean in, like, regular universe? Yeah. Uh, they retconned that, well, there's a few retcons for why Flash picked on Peter. One of them that they did in the 90s was we saw little Flash Thompson, like, around six years old or something. He would get beat by his father, and then he'd, like, you know, run outside crying and run into Peter and take out the frustration on Peter. I don't mean he would beat Peter senseless, but, you know, like, kind of, you know, give him a verbal lashing. Then there was another retcon in the 80s. Well, this was actually the first retcon, truth be told, but where he was like, uh, you know, you were always so standoffish to Liz Allen and to everyone else, so we thought that we had to knock you down a peg because you acted like you were better than us. And maybe that made sense in Flash's mind. That was Flash's justification. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. I beat you because you turned down my girlfriend. A lot of times with retcons, you have somebody's response to a general impression of a series of books rather than a retcon of actually what really happened or addressing what really happened. Like, there was an Amazing Spider-Man family issue uh, about a year ago where they sort of tried to give why Aunt May was so doting and overprotective of Peter because she had lost Ben and she just, you know, didn't know how to deal with that at the time. But that doesn't really fly with what actually happens in the books, as we're going to see with we talk about the annual. <laughs> I would, I would uh, just say, I read, I read a, a recent Sensational Spider-Man uh, during the whole his unmasking a couple of years ago, and they already they gave that out issue of why she was so doting on him because you know he got hurt and she wanted to protect him and like, he would like farm and stuff that only works to an extent there, there are some places where she's just a crazy old lady in regards to peter like being uh anti-social it's interesting because he's always tied as oh the everyman hero ho ho he's the hero that anybody could be but since not everybody is nice so it's an interesting aspect of his personality that i don't really see a lot in the besides the origin like the uh the media interpretations like spectacular spider-man i don't really see like the the um unless there's symbiotes involved like the whole like the the negative sides of his character which are a part of his character and you know because everybody's everybody has a little bad in them it's interesting that you got you only you only really find that in the comics and not so much elsewhere. It's something that's kind of like it's like it's like Bill Finger's involvement with Batman is kind of pushed to the side. Speaking of antisocial, we have Giant Man and Spider Man brawling, and the cops are there, and they're all like, you know, what do we do with these two fighting? Don't shoot them unless you have to. And Spider Man gets up on a roof, and Giant Man says, Captain, keep your men back. I'll get Spider Man for you without anyone getting hurt. And of course, he's the Avenger, so I imagine that carries a little bit of weight with the cops. And Spider Man's the, you know, alleged fugitive. And Spider Man says, Sure, Captain, hold off your men so they can sit back and enjoy the fight. They can watch me whittle Giant Man down to my size. I'll teach that human stepladder to tangle with me. And I'm just if like, I was real yeah. life, it would be like open fire. Way to engender yourself with the cops there, Spider Man. <laughs> he's, he, he, he's just running on teenage, you know, anger and adrenaline at that point. Hit me! Aunt May, you know, wasn't paying attention, and Peter's been drinking these energy drinks, and it's just, it's not going well. And we finally get a lights going on, light bulbs over their head moment, whenever um, they're about to slug each other. And actually, page 11, last panel, I honestly can't tell if they're going to punch or kiss. Uh, just the way that looks, it's kind of kind of Well, with Hank Pam, it might be both. <laughs> <laughs> Take a shot. Oh, oh God. The final Janet Pym count is. <laughs> we should, we should like, do in the very beginning, you know, uh, if you're over 21, play this drinking game. How many times we can reference uh, Hank Pym punching a woman in the face? <laughs> now, Krista, how, 
Comic book women have been abused. I mean, you, you mentioned Shashan, you mentioned Deborah uh, Whitman. I, I'm yeah, just Deborah in the Spider Man world alone. Oh my God, Deborah Whitman. Um, Mary Jane's mom got punched in the face. Mary Jane. Uh, yeah. Didn't, didn't Felicia get raved? You know. Uh, I mean, it oh. wasn't her scientist husband, but. Wow. And, but Over- did Ned ever beat on Betty Brant? I guarantee he did, probably. You know, we never saw it happen, but given Ned's, you know, habit of punching people and picking fights and Betty's, like, you know, personality, I would not doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that was an amazing way to say she had it coming. I that's not what I said at all, but I mean, you Your know, I, I could see. Well, no, yeah, Betty's like, <laughs> look at how Betty acted like an abused woman sometimes, and then like when Ned came back and like you know found her with Peter, like look at Betty's reaction. You know, she's not like, no, I left you. She's like cowering on his arm, being like, no, Ned, wait, you don't understand, and like rushes out the door with him, and you get the sense that between the hallway and the cab downstairs, Betty may have gotten a few extra. I'm done. You gotta love it whenever the comic book characters themselves turn things into innuendo. On page 14, the guy's about to swatter with the newspaper. He says, let me have a reghead. You fresh thing. We haven't even been formally introduced. And it's like, you wanted to have her? Okay. Well, she's, she's kind of cute. I just In that 60s sort of way. Didn't she, like, model for clothing or something like that? Or am I making that up? Came one, yeah. No, she did. Okay. You know, because, hey, hey, Stan Lee wasn't only writing secretaries. He was writing teenage models. So she, so she's seriously a teenager in this issue? I would yes. I, I would uh, see no reason to say that she wasn't a teenager, yeah. She, she's definitely one for me. Really? <laughs> Not a teenager for me, just, you know, a teenager. In- <laughs> But everybody was just really quiet about it. John, you have your work cut out for you with editing this episode. We are so politically incorrect. I don't think I'm going to edit much of it out. I don't. I think we're just going to let it fly. I'll put Michael's thing at the front, and we're just going to go with. (laughs) You know, we need. We need. We need. We haven't got a lot of negative responses, but we're we're going to garner them up now because we know we're being imbalanced with our positive responses. You know, you guys went on a 20 minute rant about beating women. I don't find it very nice. You know, like, I'm air- we're gonna get like the one listener who's who grew up in like a household where their mom was beaten, and how like Here's this the podcast thing. sent them back to therapy. I was so, that guy. I grew up in that house. You know, domestic violence was a part of my childhood. So if anyone's gonna laugh at it at me, so I'm going for it. Let's do this thing. And I am slowly walking away. This just got <laughs> awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be awkward. Look at page fifteen, the last panel. We've won. It's over. But why do I still feel so hostile towards Spider-Man? I guess it's because wasps and spiders are such natural enemies. You're not it's a real wasp. Sexual tension. That's how you spell <laughs> retarded, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, well, th- th- that's great, except they hit you over the head with it like three more times the next page. Yeah. So it's like, oh, keep her away from me. She makes me red. Right. And then, let's see, you know, later on, it's like, go back to your slimy old spiders and good riddance. I'll take spiders over useless flying wasps any day. It's kind of and- like Stan, it, it occurred to Stan on pay- on the second to last page, so he just had to play with it a little more. <laughs> and we're going to see it again next month in issue 18. We're going to see it again in Amazing Spider-Man Annual number three. I mean, this this is going to be their thing for the 60s. He's a handy lad to have around in a pinch, honey. It's unfortunate that spiders and wasps are natural enemies. Uh, <laughs> it's... Take, take, take the costumes off and go home and realize what you just said. <laughs> I got a question on that last page. Why is there a full laboratory in Egghead's hideout? Science! 
my boy. Was there a villain in the Silver Age who wasn't a scientist? Well, he's a bald white guy. He's got to have a laboratory somewhere, right? Bizarro. <laughs> Bizarro didn't have a secret laboratory. Bizarro. Bizarro was a had a had a lab on Bizarro World. I'm sure. It was full of broken but, vials. And, <laughs> it was a closet or something. <laughs> uh, it had like mops and broomsticks, and that's what he calls his implements and stuff. <laughs> I can see like Bizarro Lois came in. Me doing Bizarro science. <laughs> and he's just like pouring like coke and pepsi together Ooh, you make big bizarro experiments and then bizarro world explodes and like lex luther finds a way them you know like make him think that superman's responsible and there you go that's a plot i just wrote a silver age superman story <laughs> all-star superman story. and it and turns and out that book. it was all to teach lois a lesson about unlocking her door or something no there's like a book there's like several volumes on intelligent design in bizarro's lab so there you go speaking of there's- bible stuff there's a misquote which is awesome uh the last page the second panel for shame egghead you know the money is the root of all evil and um I don't know. I, I don't consider myself a, a Christian anymore, but still, misquoted Bible references bother me. I guess it's kind of uh, grammar bothers me too. But um, for the record, that is the love of money is the root of all evil. Not that money is the root of all evil, but there we go. That's kind of like the whole, you know, Luke, I am your father. No, Luke, oh, I am your father kind of thing. And he never said, Luke, I am your father. Yeah. He never said that. Or beam me up, Scotty. Or there's a lot of like misquoted things that you know. Uh, like uh, play it again, them. Sam. Yeah, I was about to say play it again, Sam. Yeah, it's no, I am your father. So right. there is an adaptation that says Luke, I am your father somewhere though, but you know he never says it in the movie. Brock Peters sang it on the radio show. That might have been it. So there's another story, a wasp solo called A Voice in the Dark in the second half of a text-only story called The Balloon in this book, but we don't care because they don't have Spider-Man in them. That's right. One other question I did have, domestic abuse aside, how does Hank Pym rate as a superhero as far as his power set goes? How do y'all feel about him? I have no opinion because I've not read, I don't think I've ever read any I've... story with him in it, besides Avengers 3. It, it seemed like he was a character, you know, because he, he's like one of the more interesting Marvel heroes because he, he wasn't there because of, a, you know, he wasn't a superhero at first. It was just a, a horror story, basically, mm-hmm. that uh, Stan Lee said, hey, I can take this character and run with. I'm, I mean, run with it. I'm not sh- <laughs> That's not a direct quote, but I, but I figure that had to go into the thinking about it. And unfortunately, in those first adventures, or at least the ones I've read, especially the introduction of the Wasp, and Boo's trying to tell you her opinion of, uh, of Ant-Man as well. Yeah, I have Boo on but, Amazing Spider-Man Classics. Woohoo! My life but, is... Um, <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> You know, it, he, she, he was just another generic Marvel hero who fought commies. Right. And giant insects. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like when, when he met Jan, he was going to some unnamed communist country to fight the bad guys. I mean, and that's what that's what Iron Man did as well. So, you know, I... I, don't, I and they tried to do that with Spider-Man in his first issue. Chameleon was a communist. Yeah. Know. And the red I, ghost <laughs> with the super apes. Yeah. Not, not, yeah. not the, the not crimson the no, or, or the red guardian, right? Wasn't that what? black widows? Red That's guardian. Be like one of the most dated fantastic four stories ever in crimson yeah. dynamo. But you know, he wasn't, I think as a superhero in the sixties, he was pretty average. You know, it, it was only later that, that the Hulk and Iron Man and all that got really interesting. I think those he's, first he, couple he's Iron Man stories suck. 
I read most of Iron Man's Tales of Suspense, and it wasn't until somewhere in the 70s or 80s that I actually had an emotional response to an Iron Man story. I was just reading them to read them to know what happened in the stories because the movie had just come out, um, but I wasn't really digging on them. But uh, Giant Man seems to me, not that this is necessarily a bad thing, but a lot of DC's heroes, especially from this time, seem to me to be gimmick heroes with the flash he had speed. And that's the only one I can think of. But um, the Giant Man, he can grow and shrink. There's there's really nothing else to his character or his personality. He can grow and shrink. And that's the, the way they made drama in the Avengers with Giant Man was taking away his growing and shrinking powers. And oh my gosh, that's drama for Hank Pym. Yeah, but um, just about every Marvel character was a gimmick to a certain extent. I mean, look at all of Spider-Man's villains. Villains, yes, much more so than heroes. I was thinking of heroes when I said that. Um, lots and lots of gimmick villains out there. That was actually kind of a... I, I actually had a discussion with a, a mutual friend of ours a few days ago just on villains because uh, he was arguing that uh, Spider-Man has, a world, has the best Rose Gallery and I actually thought that Batman did because... And my, my reasoning for that was because... Until very very recently, the majority of Spider-Man's villains were just were just guys with gimmicks. They had they had uh, powers, but more or less generic personalities for like a long long time. Well, you know, Batman's did too. But you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna say who has the greatest rogues gallery in comics, you'd have to go into comic strips and say Dick Tracy because he was he's oh. the one. Said, oh yeah, <laughs> he's the one that kind of set the template for having a know, rogues gallery with colorful. Uh, yeah, with, with colorful characters with, with odd names. But, you know, Spider-Man and Batman are up there. You know, they, they have the ones that are at least more memorable than other heroes. Uh, unfortunately, like the I Melter? Have to... <laughs> well, yeah, but for every Melter, you have, like, Dr. Octopus and, you know... And the um, Rhino. And, well, and the, the Rhino, rhino and, who's really easy to beat in that first uh, PlayStation game. So all you have to do is make him run into the electrical... Uh, panel, but um. Oh no, Spidey fans! Black Cat's out for the count. <laughs> narration. play it tonight. But no, no. I mean, I mean, he he does. I don't think he has the best one because I'm kind of with Donovan. I think Batman, hands down, has the best Rogues Gallery uh, in in comic books, at least, with Spider-Man coming into a second and Flash being behind the two of them. But it's certainly extensive and it's certainly memorable. Exactly. Tis true. Tis true. Batman's but. Rogues Galleries have had more solo series than any other uh, heroes Rogues Gallery, if that statement makes any sense. Catwoman. Catwoman had several. You had Harley Quinn getting her own series. There's a lot of like the Joker's Asylum gives like a lot of these characters one shots right now. Whereas, um, yeah. to my knowledge, I don't think they've done a lot of one shot stories with Spider-Man villains, unless you can't like Tangle Web or something. When your villains are interesting enough, they can merit their own series. That that says something really strong because that's that's just not true of ninety nine point several nines percent of Marvel's villains. Gotham City Sirens, no comment. Well, 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 let's be fair. When there was Venom miniseries, it was just because Venom was really popular. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't that they were particularly good. Carnage, mind bomb. Yeah, but like, aside from Venom, how many Spider-Man, you know, villains have had their own series or one shots? I can. I mean, I, off the top of my head, I can only think of Doctor Octopus and Norman the Green Goblin. That's the only. But one. those were like Spider-Man versus, you know, them miniseries. You know, like I'm talking about like solo series or whatever. Wasn't there? Like, there was series. like a uh, Oct- Octopus Year One or something like that, or Norman yeah, Osborn's Journal or something. I, you like? know, I can. Well, I the Osborn Journal, yeah, but that was really more tied to like Spider-Man events. 
But still, that, I don't know. Okay. I, 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 I guess the fact that that's a definition definition issue, though. If you have an opinion on Spider-Man's Rose Gallery and how popular they are, please email in at AmazingSpiderManClassics at gmail.com. Tell us your thoughts about Spider-Man villains. And, uh, are they great? Do they suck? What do you know? <laughs> so, again, this is not an actual Spider-Man book, so we're not really looking at the ads, but I do want to mention that the Green Goblin Hulk issue, Amazing Spider-Man 14, did get an ad in this. Uh, so if you had read this for your Giant Man book, then you would have seen, oh, look, he's going to fight the Hulk and gone over there. And I can see little Bailey or little Brad doing that if you were alive in the 60s. And there isn't a letter column anyway in Tales to Astonish at this point, so we don't even care. It's not part of the regular Spidey series, but since we did focus on it, I want to point out that this story is reprinted in Amazing Spider-Man King Size Special 8, the Astonishing Ant-Man Essential, and the second Ant-Man Giant Man Marvel Masterworks hardcover. So uh, we don't normally do that with the Spider-Man books because we're just going through them sequentially, but when we pull something out and focus on it, I want to let you know where it's available. There's an Ant-Man Essential. Yeah, there's an Astonishing Ant-Man Essential that uh, reprints the Tales to Astonish stories. I think that they actually adapted this in Chapter 1, like, but, but you know, combined it with uh, the Spider-Man quit story that took place in issues 18 and 19. Uh, really quickly, I'm looking now, uh, yeah, they, they adapt this story. I'm looking at, uh, is- at Chapter 1, Issue 11, and Janet Pym is firing her compressed air gun, and there's okay. Egghead. After these messages, we'll be right back. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Amazing Spider-Man 16 was released on June 9th, 1964, which is just a few days before my birthday. Not that I exist yet. Um, Donovan Grant, fill us in on what happened here. Three words. Spidey. Battles. Daredevil. Da-da-da. Featuring the eerie menace of the Ringmaster, you know, one of the most memorable villains in Marvel's pantheon. Uh, yeah, Duel with Daredevil, uh, written by Stanley, Master of the Spoken Word, illustrated by Steve Dicko, Dean of drawing, Dramatic Drawings, and lettered by S. Rosen, Sultan of Sparkling, sparkling Spelling. 
So you know that you know this is a six, six, 60s Marvel book because of the alliteration. Uh, we begin with Peter being annoyed by Aunt May to, you know, hey, go out with Mary Jane Watson. She's a nice girl. She'll make a lovely housewife. I've seen her. I believe it. And he's like, come on, I want my own girlfriend. This go. is the first time he says her first name. But her, she, uh, they say her first name, by the way. Oh, yeah. It was just uh, the uh, Anna Watson's niece last time. Yeah. So he's like, you know. That's, I, I can't take this much longer, so Aunt May, I'm out of here. I'm going out for some air. And in the fourth panel, we see that Spider-Man is actually a lot with like the viewers and that he's very annoyed by Aunt May at this point. I love how he just totally ditches his Aunt May for being a nag. Yeah. Would do. She <laughs> looks so evil in that third panel, though. Like, <laughs> be sure to dress warmly. <laughs> like, Jesus, Aunt May, did you look into the Ark of the Covenant? Or what the hell is <laughs> Your Uncle Ben wants didn't dress warmly enough, and then a burglar got him. <laughs> hey, you can't keep on, you know, relating that situation to everything. Exactly. Um, so the Amazing Spider-Man is out on the prowl, just, you know, hanging around walls when he sees burglars flee their latest, um, I think they robbed a bank or something. And then, oh no, they run into a blind man. So Spider-Man, you know, seeing that they ran into this blind man, comes in and proceeds to beat the crowd out of them. He webs them up and says, don't worry, you're safe now. And this mysterious blind man who we can't, it's Matt Murdock. <laughs> Uh, he's like, he, as, as Spider-Man runs away, he's like, huh. He says to himself out loud, of course. So that was Spider-Man. Hmm. I'd say he's about 17, 5 foot 10 inches, and judging by the sound of his pulse and heartbeats, in excellent health. He, he proceeds to... Um, okay, Donovan, uh, now read that as Herbert the Pervert from Family Guy. <laughs> well, hey there, Muslim. Hey there, Muslims. That was Spider-Man. Hmm. I'd say he's about 17, 5 foot 10 inches. And judging by the sound of his pulse and heartbeat, and excellent health. <laughs> you have to add his little. Mm. And the cane goes. Mm. <laughs> Damn you. <laughs> I may be blind, but my other senses are heightened. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. So this blind man revealed to me. Lawyer Matt Murdock reveals again that he is Daredevil. Yes, it is Daredevil. And if you've never heard of Daredevil in 1964, then he lets you know all his powers. He can, you know, use his radar sense to, even though he's blind, see around everything around him and fly around the sky, almost as Spider-Man does, but with the use of his cane. He goes back to his, um, it's his law office, right? Yeah, he goes back to, like, Murdock and Nelson, and uh, he changes back into his uh, lawyer suit. And then as he goes to the office, his secretary, Karen Page, and his partner, Foggy Nelson, says, hey, let's go, go to the circus he's like uh no you guys go I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm cool just hanging out i have some work to do and then karen is like but mr murdoch you work so hard you need some relaxation and they all feel bad for him because oh he's blind and you know and that's like you know i'd rather not do this because i i can't tell the truth i don't trust my feelings for karen it's better that I don't see her socially. So there's more relationship drama in the 60s. I do have to hand it to Stan, though, because in this page and a half, you know absolutely everything there is to need to know about the Daredevil universe. You know, his entire power set, you know exactly yeah. where his characters stand. He basically brought you entirely up to date on the Daredevil Bible right here. But I do have to say that, unfortunately, the level of detail that we get on Daredevil's powers here is done over and over and over again in his own book for the first two or three issues. I, I've, I've said before, I, I, I bought the first Daredevil Essential, and it's hard for me to get past the, into the third issue because there's so much talking about his powers. And Just filling the panels with words on explaining how he's doing things, like he does here, he does that all through the Daredevil books. I know, it's like studying. Yeah. I'll, I'll make it through eventually. We cut to like um, this, this, this circus, which turns out to be a circus of crime? 
yes, it's, this man is called the Ringmaster, and he's, you know, saying, ever since I defeated the Hulk, the Hulk defeated me months ago. I planned this one spectacular performance. Do I do anything we've done in the past? So it sounds like he's trying to go legit almost, but that, alas, that's not the case. It, it's his idea to actually advertise that they're having Spider-Man in the circus to bring in as much people from New York as possible. Uh, cut to page six where Peter's like, I don't remember signing up for a circus. Well, maybe I did, but maybe I didn't. Let me just go just in case. So he goes to the Daily Bugle and says, I'm not, I'm not going to be working tonight, JJ. I'm going to go to the circus. And Jameson says... Like, like I keep you for your personality. Go to Timbuktu for all I care. And he, he also tells him he also tells him something that I don't think is resolved in this issue. I don't want pictures of Spider-Man anymore. I get a publicity hound to we'll go to some other city. So while this is being carried out, Betty Brandt enters and says, "Oh, I I'm I know a new spaghetti recipe for you." And he's like, "Oh, I love you, Betty." But and then he drops his he drops his invite and she starts to go in the whole you know weepy Betty Brandt thing. Basically, as everybody goes in the circus, both Matt Murdock kind of, once he hears that Spider-Man is going to the circus, he changes his tune and decides to go along with Karen and Foggy. Peter is there and has spider senses going off once he passes Matt Murdock saying, that's the blind guy earlier today. I wonder why my spider senses is going off. Is he dangerous? Ah, whatever. Let me chase Spider-Man and get all the publicity and things. Yeah, why is his spider sense going off there? I have no clue. Uh, yeah, is it foreshadowing? That, that was, well, it's because, isn't it because... I mean, because I always thought that it was too dangerous that, that it's presented to him, not just if somebody has powers or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't see anything dangerous happening in that panel, so I wasn't sure why his spider sense was going off. But oh well, that's just me. Yeah, I, I was actually at the same kind of note. So Peter changes to Spider-Man and shows up in the middle of the circus to everyone's delight. He starts flipping around and everything. By this point... The ringmaster uh, has a big, a big flat top hat, and with a, a with a hypno coin, I guess, is on. <laughs> exactly what it is. It's a hypno coin on his hat. So cut to the hypno coin as the ringmaster not only hypnotizes the audience to serve under his will, but also Spider-Man. Luckily, Matt Brock is blind, so this does not affect him, even though his super other senses are heightened to superhuman superhuman abilities. He changes to Daredevil and attempts to stop him, but remasters six Spider-Man on him, and the two have a typical Marvel superhero fight. They tussle for a while until Daredevil swings to the top of the trapeze. He, he basically swings around and eventually gets hold of the hat. He reawakens Spider-Man's consciousness, and the two battle the circuits of crime. Daredevil and Spider-Man kind of battle him for a while, and actually Daredevil says, huh, he's pretty good on his own. Let me change that to, to Matt Murdock and enjoy the show. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, he, like a dick, he's watching as Spider-Man fights all these guys at once. But, of course, Spider-Man has superhuman powers, so he, he, pretty, he pretty easily beats these guys. It takes a few pages because, obviously, we need some action, and it's Lee and Ditko, so it takes a while. But eventually, these guys go down, and Spider-Man, Spider-Man pretty much takes them all out, even the, even the Ringmaster. There's a scene where he tries to hypnotize him with the Hypnocoin again, but either Ditko drew it to where he used his spider senses against the Hypnocoin, or Stan Lee wrote it to where he's closing his eyes behind the mask. Either way, it doesn't work, and Spider-Man takes him down once and for all. <laughs> Cut, cut to Peter, still a Spider-Man, saying, Huh, where, I wonder where Devil is, Daredevil is. I wonder how he managed to fight through the hypnosis. It was happening so suddenly that only a blind man could be unaffected. Well, naturally, that can't be the case, Daredevil, a blind man. How ridiculous. Irony, right? So the, the issue ends with Matt Murdock giving the ringmaster his business card in case he gets needs a lawyer. And Spider-Man swings away, you know, as we get an ad to check out Daredevil in his own magazine. And that is the end of Amazing Spider-Man number 16, the big Daredevil crossover. 
He's not getting enough uh, business from the Fantastic Four. He has to drum up Spider-Man too. Yeah, <laughs> Fantastic Four like fired him at the end of the second issue of Daredevil. They're like, "Well, you're they too did. slow." But and I guess Stanley forgot because later on in FF they talked about how he's been their lawyer since issue two of his own magazine. Maybe they were fired. Matt Murdock represents everybody in the Marvel universe. If there's ever anybody that needs a freaking lawyer, yeah, it's 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 like Matt Murdock. One of the first comics I ever read of the Hulk in the comics was 293 where this guy tries to shoot Bruce Banner at the airport. Turns out that the Hulk trashed his town and he needs a good lawyer. And Bruce thinks Matt Murdock, (laughs) not not Jim Walters, Matt Murdock. Well, he's, he's handing out those business cards every single place he goes. I wonder if they're written (laughs) in Braille. So like everyone just uses him because they feel sorry for him because he's blind. Right. I'm blind. I want to. (laughs) Okay. So first it was domestic violence and now it's blindness. I mean, (laughs) well, I I said, that's going to be our two things tonight. Cause they, this is like, (laughs) they treat Matt Murdock. Like he's, you know, like he's a four year old here. They really do. Oh, no, he's lost. Even though he was walking himself home earlier this issue and he does it on a regular basis in the Daredevil, we lost. Oh, no, we better make sure he doesn't go home with a stranger or something. Well, we, we were saying before we recorded that, like, why would you take a, 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 a visually challenged person to a visually appealing circus? Like, what's, where's the logic in that? And they're like, you know, you need to get out once in a while. Come join us and watch the circus with us, Matt. The guy who's blind? Come on, it'll be fun. And then later on, they're like, we'll describe everything to you. And then after the circus is going, they're like, um, is there anything you want us to describe to you? Because we're paying too much attention to the show and watching it and not talking to you. Idiots. Foggy inviting him is really weird because over in... Okay, because at the beginning, Foggy says that he's taking Karen to the circus. Hey, would you like to come with us? Because over in the actual Daredevil series, all he wanted to do was get alone with Karen Page. And he didn't want Matt around because Karen... It's one of those, you know, Lee-Stanley love triangles. Because Foggy loved Karen. Karen loved Matt. Matt loved Karen. But Karen and Matt didn't tell each other that they loved each other because each of them thought that the other person hated them. Foggy knew that they loved each other, but they didn't know that foggy knew it was you know stanley love triangle so foggy was like you know he always wanted karen to himself and would always try and you know get matt out of the picture well wouldn't you want to get along with karen page i mean before the aids that is (laughs) before the aids yes before she became like a heroin addict you know you know and as of like the third i think we said this on other podcasts but as of like the second and third issue of the series both foggy and matt they're not thinking about dating her they're like man i gotta propose to karen page fast just- well that's what you do i mean it's like at the beginning of this issue uh aunt may's trying to get peter to go out with mary jane she says it's not like you're engaged or anything because if yeah. if, if you're not <laughs> engaged <forgetted> that <laughs> 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 there are other levels of exclusivity besides engagement to be married. Oh, no. did Aunt May, go ahead, Michael. <laughs> no, it's just it's just like on my Aunt May rant. Out of me because because she he, she's like, well, you you need to go out with Mary Jane Watson. You know, I have a girlfriend. It's like Peter doesn't even say. Oh, it's seriously. like Peter doesn't even say anything. You know, it's just like Aunt May's like, no, no, that that you're, you're it's not like you're married. You're a teenager. You're supposed to be going out with every girl in sight. Oh, oh, God, I hate Aunt May. I hate Aunt May. Not just having a girlfriend, but a girlfriend who has made overtures of friendship to Aunt May, who visited her in the hospital, and hey, in this very issue said, I made spaghetti dinner. Bring your aunt over. You know, the one that's trying to get you to cheat on me. Wow. 
That's what Betty says. She's like, I know, you know no, no, I know. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. I know. <laughs> Aunt May, we hate you. Aunt May is so two faced. Whenever like Betty would leave a room, she'd be like, "Hey, you got to dump her and date Anna Watson's, you know, hot piece of ass niece." Wow. <laughs> oh, hush. Betty's coming back in. More tea, Betty dear. <laughs> <laughs> She's diabolically oh. plotting behind her back. <laughs> this is where anti May first was born. And then was well, and I mean, and we'll get to it in the annual, but like, you know, the second that she thinks something's wrong with Peter, she's like, it's that Betty Brand's fault. Exactly. Yeah. What did Brady ever do to her? Betty's like the most simpering, you know, the, like domicile female there is in comics at this point. Like, I actually think it works really well with May's personality that she's writing her off because she didn't finish school and she's a working girl, not a nice little housewife kind of girl. But May, does, does May ever bring that up? Or does she even know no. that? No. She just hates her. <laughs> she just, I just she, she makes a comment about somebody making a nice housewife, I think, with uh, Anna Watson's niece or somebody making a nice housewife. And so I Betty wouldn't. Well, I was going to get into this more into the annual, but, you know, when Aunt May thinks that Peter's playing hooky, she thinks that he's doing it with Betty Brandt. And I guess because Betty, you know, like, didn't finish school, she thinks that that might be a bad influence on Peter because Peter and Aunt May's biggest fight was in the 80s when he dropped out of graduate school. And, like, she wouldn't talk to him for, like, 10, uh, you know, or 15 issues or something. So I guess the fear of Peter, you know, getting influenced by this dropout girl, maybe that's what this is, although I don't know what... this is 1964. She probably read a lot of like really seedy stories where girl, you know, the bad girl, the teen, the teenage rebel, you know, who were like be like smoking and skipping school because there was a lot of that going on in like the 50s and 60s. So she probably read too much junk fiction. I mean, and it gets worse because in issue 25, Aunt May, you know, says to the girls, "Oh, cool, you're here. Hey, meet Mary Jane." You she's know, like, she's, she's here to she's meet like Aunt Peter. Anna from uh, the 90s show. Did you hear that uh, Harry Osborne has proposed to my Mary Jane? <laughs> God. so let's talk ringmaster for a minute um i have in my notes a huge load of asterisks saying read hulk number three before doing the show and of course i didn't now, do it hulk. <laughs> um i'm assuming as a hulk fan mike that you've probably read those first six issues yep do you have enough memories of number three to talk about the ringmaster story it, it was kind of a, a weird villain the thing about the first six issues of the hulk is that and i think you guys have talked about this before is that you know spider-man and the fantastic floor were flukes when you look at the early marvel universe is that it, it seemed to come out so perfectly crafted immediately that you think well all marvel books are like that and they're not the hulk they had a really good first issue and then didn't seem to know what to do with them and it's like the circus of crime was just this kind of afterthought And if I'm remembering it correctly, the Hulk was pretending to be a robot, like a robot part of the circus. And it was just, it was a gimmick. It was a circus of crime. And the ringmaster hypnotizes people and then steals all their money. And only Rick Jones is able to break free and help the Hulk defeat him. You know, it's a pretty average issue and it pretty much goes like this. I mean, they, they get their butts kicked. That's what they do. Is anyone reading Avengers The Origin right now? Absolutely not. Because they do that. They tie that, not with the ringmaster necessarily, but they tie the plot of Hulk being uh, joining a circus and being a robotic character and with the painted face and everything, all sad clown style. They tie that into the Avengers origin plot. And uh, Well, if I'm remembering correctly, that happened in an early issue of Avengers, where he was... uh, 
I wonder it, if I'm confusing those two. Okay, I, I honestly, I, I don't it's know. It's been a few years since I've read Hulk number three, and I don't have as much storage capacity as I once did. I really need to get an external hard drive for my brain, right? So I can start <laughs> storing more information, really. So uh, okay, I just I, I thought we'd bring uh, see what we could remember from that one. I I have read the first six issues of Hulk, but I've read them once, and it's been two years now. I don't. I remember when I read the Ringmaster story because I knew that he was a precursor to this because this is the first footnote to that references a book outside of Spidey's own book and the you know I knew that was there from the time I was six so when I finally read it I was like oh the ringmaster story and I finished it and I was like oh the ringmaster story but I couldn't remember any details about it so anyways that's that so on um on page six yeah do they ever get back to Jameson not wanting Spider-Man pictures anymore I mean obviously Stanley was a one gag guy typically he would forget about stuff but I was just wondering like whether James never come, like in the next issue or something comes back or says, next Oh, actually issue. I do want pictures with him again. The next issue is the big Spider-Man fan club and the hoopla at Liz Allen's dad's place. I honestly don't remember what Jameson says about spider photos there, but I assuming he wants to get some, uh, no, I don't know. I, I honestly don't remember. I haven't reread it yet. I haven't I actually, I actually read that a few nights ago. Um, for some reason, thinking that, that was going to be this episode and he, he, he is there and wants Peter to take pictures. So, so yeah, I guess it's just a, Jameson's going through a one issue phase. That Spider-Man's going to be bigger than the Beatles, so he needs to send Parker there to check on this fan club thing. And the Beatles oh. are new here, right? This is this is getting into the latter half of '64, so we have. Be- uh, right. Yeah, they they they've been a, they've been big in America since about February of '64, or so but you know they they're already a few years old in England. Cool. What what were you just singing? Is they, like when there's uh, is a daydream believer or something like that? Just... Yeah, that's the monkeys. You fail. Oops. Wow. That, that, that's, that's like calling somebody from uh, New Zealand like Aussie. I mean, you just you just kicked Josh in the nuts. I hey, hey, we're it. the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I will be retiring from Amazing Spider-Man Classics. That's okay. You're about to never speak to me again. I always kind of preferred the monkeys. But Michael hey, Bailey, you can go to heck. <laughs> we are done professionally (laughs) (laughs) so i did i I did mention how the 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 spider sense is now a superhero sense with uh matt murdoch there but the panel below that he's climbing the the anchoring rope to get up to the top of the tent so he can go in i'm pretty sure that's not how you get inside the top of a tent because that's a closed off hole there it's just a little bit of opening for ventilation you can't get to the top of it inside of a tent by going up. That's just weird. Am I am I talking out of my ass here? Does the Austin saying here? Oh no, I uh, got you. I'm not because we've seen him like like walk ropes before, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the tent and climb up on the inside of the tent to get to the inside top of a tent. But I don't know. Maybe I obviously don't go to enough circuses. There was like a big obsession with circuses in some of these early Stanley stories. I don't know. As there why. was with Hollywood. Yeah, and was, speaking of Holly and like plots being reused, next issue we have another like thing like here where it's like, well, let's just put that Spider-Man's coming on the poster, and then <laughs> Spider-Man like sees it and he's like, well, they say I'm coming, so I guess I gotta come. <laughs> Stanley, the only the only writer to rip himself off <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> Stanley's so awesome that he rips his own stuff off. I I, I didn't really dig on the circus of crime very much it's not one of my favorite issues of this run not that i hate it but i when i finally got to the post 20 issues um a couple Mm -hmm. years ago i was so surprised to find that they didn't just fade away into the woodwork the circus of crime comes back and a few times and that's the one with princess python right yeah she's not in this one but she's in the next one i think it's around issue 24 that that is a god-awful name princess Princess python Python. (laughs) 
But she's it sounds like ah, we won't talk about her name. <laughs> she probably later became a stripper, you know, like in you know brand new you know Marvel universe or something. They'll recon that she was a stripper. She fell on some hard times. The ringmaster for crime came into the bar for a lap dance one day and said, "Want to be part of my circus of crime?" And she said, "You know, you tip me for this lap dance, I'll do anything." And then, then, then cut to Steve Dicko's drawing of her and the issues. Look at Steve Dicko drawing. Foggy Nelson looks like he cut a lot of weight. Yes. Yes, he does. Especially, I'm on page 9 and 10 right now, and page 10 on the right where they're all frozen and with my will is your will. Foggy Nelson, you know, he's got a nice looking face there. It doesn't look like overweight at all. In the early issues of Daredevil, I think that, like, the whole short and fat thing, like, yeah, he was always a little pudgy, but I think, like, he got more short and more fat as the series went on, as opposed to the first 10 issues or so. I think it's, been, so- it's, it's been a while, though. I, I might be remembering this art wrong. I mean, this is, this is obviously, like, very early Daredevil where he's wearing the yellow and black uh, yeah he gets the red in issue five i think doesn't he and he's a he he acts like a bowling ball that's one of my favorite panels in the issue where he just (laughs) that's i i don't understand the physics on that but am i the only one that likes this costume I don't hate it. I, I, actually, I actually think it's interesting as a, like a. It's one of those costumes that's kind of like that looks like it was looked at after someone saw a circus performer. But um, I don't know. The, the all red kind of speaks to me if it's done right, if it's colored a certain way. I kind of dig it because, like I said, before, I, I read these when I was six, and I read them many, many multiple times. And it wasn't until I was 10 or 11 when I started buying comics for myself off the shelf that I saw that he had a red costume. So the yellow costume has always, you know, been Daredevil, you know for me and i think it it speaks to his name much more than the red one does the red is definitely the devil side but he looks like an acrobat he looks like what he was going for when he took the name daredevil in this yellow costume i dig it but this this yellow costume has a giant d instead of like the two d's and i've actually i think i think somewhere i've seen it like uh what the yellow costume has two d's but um that's neither here nor there does anyone else on page nine at the top when spider-man has little numbered moves going through the circus did anyone else like use their finger and trace what he did and like imagine how he got from pose to pose in your only mind f- only when i read family circus absolutely not <laughs> i guess i'm the only one who does that um he says about the um the ringmaster in his head, he says, what's he trying to do? Crab my act? And I'm thinking, but you weren't invited to this circus, Spider-Man. Remember? You're not actually supposed to be here. Well, it- no, he was invited. They put his name on the flyer. I'm sorry, you know. But he only just happened to see it. You could put my name on a flyer and post it in Georgia, and I'm not going to know that you're inviting me. I mean, it's just, it doesn't matter. <laughs> hey, what are you well, doing? You're, you're in my way, sir. You. <laughs> John, I saw your name on this flyer. Are you coming to Georgia? I guess I am now. <laughs> well, how many John Wilsons are there? I mean, especially because those are two very common names. And how many Spider-Mans are there? It's not like they were inviting Spider-Man 2099 or Ben <laughs> Riley. <laughs> ben Riley Spider-Man will appear this time, you know, several years from the future. Okay, so, so I, I wonder about these mass hypnosis things. I mean, it takes a certain amount of time to, like, rotate around and get everyone in the room, right? And so I'm just wondering, why do all the other hundreds of people just sit there and wait for him to get to them to do the hypnosis thing? Are you trying to say it doesn't make sense? No, no, I would never say that about a 1960s comic book. It's like Seinfeld, the Good Samaritan Syndrome, you know? (laughs) Well, my turn to get, you know, flamboozled. I don't know. It just doesn't. <laughs> so um, I I I, I like this issue because Daredevil's in it. Because uh, after Spider-Man, Daredevil's like my um, second favorite Marvel character. He's like I think he's like maybe number three or four of my top five characters. But like the remaster, 
He's another one of those like forgotten Marvel. Like, I don't know. Is he used? Has he been used lately a lot, or has he been used like throughout time, or is it like, another one of those forgotten heroes? So he was. Uh, he played a major part of integrating all of the Hulk's personalities uh, during Peter David's run. The Samson brought him in to to basically hypnotize Bruce Banner. And that's how he was able to integrate the personalities. So, yeah, he's he, he's not like a major force, but he comes back every once in a while. There's a short story in Ultimate Hulk, which was a short, uh, which was an anthology that was released in 98 that really deals with, like, the behind the scenes of that story. And he's in that as well. So And just for uh, anyone he, listening who doesn't know, that has nothing to do with the Ultimate Marvel stuff. It's a, it's a yeah. totally different thing. Mm. But if you happen to find a copy of Ultimate Spider-Man, the short story anthology, pick it up. It's really good. Yeah, I heard you say that on the CrossFit before, and I, I, should, I should give that a Google search. We interviewed Keith uh, DeCandido over on Teenage Wasteland, and he had a hand in putting that together. I can't remember if it was just editing or if he has an actual story in there. He, 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 it was, it was his first story. Okay. was in that book, and he edited, uh, like, that entire line. Thomas DJ has a story in the Hulk one. Ooh, really? So yes. what? Yeah, he wrote he wrote the the non defender story. Interesting, that's pretty uh, cool. It says here that the on I'm on the uh, chronologyproject.com, which is the um, Marvel chronology project, and the latest appearance that they have cataloged of the Ringmaster is Amazing number five thirty three and Civil War War Crimes one shot. So he's still around and doing stuff. He has at least fifty books listed here on their website that he's been in over the years. So he's he's not just a background character. Oh. I guess as characters go, he is one of the more minor ones, but he he's not just a random guy, ringmaster. I mean, I've heard of him before, but like he's I don't know, it's he's kind of like arcade in that you don't see him that much anymore, even though he was part of like the original Marvel bad guys group. Arcade I was I don't know, he's X Men, but uh, late seventies, early eighties, I don't know. Are we talking like Eddie Arcadia from the Last Dragon? <laughs> that was an awesome movie. Yes, we are. Wait, 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 wait. The Last Dragon, yes, with Bruce Leroy. Well, that was his nickname, but yeah, Bruce Leroy. God. The guy who, after hours and hours and hours, still couldn't act. <laughs> yes. Like, they got him up to that level through much, much effort, and he was still the worst actor on the movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, am I the meanest? Show enough. Am, am I, I the greatest? Show enough. Am I the baddest mofo low down Stay this town? This town. <laughs> we sell that at my store that I work at, and I, I see it unbought Dude, every single day. Seriously, <laughs> watch it. No, you will laugh your ass off. It's actually I, got some decent fight scenes in it. Yeah. But it's funny as hell. It is. I saw some YouTube clips of, of one of the fight scenes. It looks really funny. It's cult classic status. It, it has to be seen at least once. And it's got uh -oh. Chaz Palminteri in it. Jasper Materi? Who's that? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Oh, God, I forget <laughs> that you guys are, like, in your 20s, so you don't remember the night. man. He was in, like, every movie. <laughs> which, uh, who, which character was he? He was one of the thugs. It was one of his first films. Oh, I, I, I might recognize his face, because I'm only, I'm only a couple years behind you. Um, but uh, I might recognize his face, but I don't recognize his name. You know, I'm I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say because because my notes on this one are kind of sparse because it it all boils down to this is just a fun issue. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, there it's not a deep plot. It's not a mythology building issue for Spider-Man. It's just a team up with him and Daredevil. And on, on that level, I think it's a great success because it has everything about a Marvel hero team up that you really want to see you know you know they they have to fight and they fight through a weird set of circumstances and actually 
how many times has a hero had to fight another hero because he was being hypnotized? I mean, it's, it, I was it, just about it, to say, yeah. There, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of good old fashioned superhero stuff in this. I like Daredevil. I actually wish they would get back to kind of this fun Daredevil because he's a he's a fun character. He was in the '60s. Was it silly as hell? Yes. I, I'm Two not words: dis- Mike Murdoch. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say. <laughs> I was about to say the man posed as his own twin brother to throw everybody off of the secret identity thing but you know there's something to be said about you know a character that is just kind of having fun with what he does daredevil and spider-man have a lot in common in terms of personality and you know what they did you know daredevil swung around town just as much as as spider-man did so i like seeing them meet i like the fact that you know like uh, john said that you know you get everything about daredevil you need to know on that first page right and while it's a little clunky to read these days it's still kind of cool and still appeals to me when i was a kid when i didn't when you would open a comic you didn't know who these people were so you needed like a couple lines of dialogue saying this is hero x this is what he can do this is his major weakness here is a list of his fears but it was a really good story I enjoyed the heck out of it. These ads creep me out in this <laughs> issue. I don't know if to talk about the ads, but there is one. Well, uh, let me get to it. While you're getting uh, that, I just want to say that uh, Marvel Team-Up could have taken a really big note from this book because you have oh, yeah. just a little bit of nod to the current spider-man continuity what's going on in his life with jameson and his aunt and betty not a lot just a little and then the rest of the book is getting to know the team-up character who is daredevil why is he daredevil you know what's his power set it's in the rest of the book while functioning as a story it also functions as a sales pitch for the character's book yeah Mm -hmm. and it works i was was about to say that that you know daredevil was still a relatively new character let's throw him in with spider-man you know it's it's why certain characters were like thrown into brave and the bold and dc comics presents over at dc just to give them a little more exposure Speaking of, uh, John mentioned Betty and Jonah at the Bugle. Can somebody tell me, why did Peter go to the Daily Bugle this issue? Because uh, they, so they just need to show. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> well, what's the in, what's the in-story reason? Because he shows up and he says, I hope you won't need me tonight, Jonah. I'm going to the circus. I think that's now, the reason. To, to, say, to say, I'm going to the circus, I hope you don't need me. But Jonah says, it's not like he's picking up a check because he says, you haven't had any photos for me in days yeah so you haven't been to work in days you show up at work hey i'm going to the circus tonight now back then you could say that he was showing up to walk betty home or something but judging by his conversation with betty i doubt that he intended on bumping into her there which is really stupid because oh wait i forgot that my girlfriend's the secretary (laughs) yeah she had to walk past (laughs) him in the first place to get into this room (laughs) yeah so there's no uh, logical reason for him to be going to the bugle, except for yeah. I mean, ex- except for for a writer's standpoint. Yeah, there is an in the box reason provided, but it sort of falls apart if you look at it. Strange. It, it falls apart if you look at it. Period. <laughs> <laughs> you look at it. Strange. There's no no. There's no logic. He hasn't been the work in days. He's like and he shows up and he says, "I'm going to the circus tonight." Okay, I don't care. And the other thing is, is he's freelance. I mean. Speaking realistically, he he is on no obligatory schedule to these people. I mean, he's just bringing in photos and selling them when he gets them. So he shouldn't yeah. he shouldn't even have to come in. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I think, you're right. I think he just wants Jonah to think he has a life. Like, hey, 
Just so you know, I'm going to the circus tonight. That's nice, Peter. I have a life outside of you, you know. On your scary ad, Mike? Uh, the Yubiwaza ad. Oh, yes. It says, boys, it? men, I'll help you master Yubiwaza, says NJ Fleming, Yubiwaza master. Yubiwaza is the secret, amazingly easy art of self-defense that turns just one finger or your hand into a potent weapon of defense without any <laughs> bodily contact. And Can offenses- I do the wife? Yeah, do the wife. I was about to say. I weigh only 98 pounds, yet I can paralyze a 200-pound attacker with just a finger because I know Yubiwaza, says Yoshie Imanami, pretty Japanese wife of NJ Fleming. And I do the voice because that's exactly how it would have been done if this was a radio ad in 1964. It's the first appearance of Shishan. I know, that's the wrong country and everything. It's just... it's like he he writes i'm a third degree holder of the black belt symbol of high proficiency in the japanese system of self-defense that uses no weapons but bare hands and you got this is before everybody was kung fu fighting so i have to imagine that you know asian martial arts were still like this unknown thing at the time but still it's really weird that's the sickest thing i've heard this week by the way, this conversation uh, on the bottom of page six, last panel, you could that pretty much could apply the next issue if you just replace circus with Spider-Man fan club meeting. Yeah, heck, to, heck how can I explain that? Whole. I can't take her because I'll be changing in the Spider-Man. Peter yeah, pretty much this, like this definitely is repeated next, next month. Yeah, except you know Betty's like blow up is a little how, bit how was bigger. It? Why was he... Oh, I see. He was fishing into his pocket, and that's how the ticket came out. You must be taking another girl with that single ticket, which is obviously a single ticket and not two quid tickets. The point for this scene is so so we can see more of Betty Brant crying needlessly. Because we haven't gotten that in the past several months. Woman, I have a life outside of you. Maybe I want to go to the circus by myself. It's like (laughs) he can't have have a social life outside of her because she doesn't have a social life, you know, because she's Jonah's secretary, and she probably works, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. So that's why you know, she's dating a kid from high school. Betty, you know, probably doesn't go out and stuff. So if Peter does, you know, she takes it. A, oh, you're going to the circus without me. It must be because you're cheating on me. I think that <laughs> we never found out what happened to Betty's father. I think that he was like just a big cheater. So Betty takes it out on everyone. You're, you're a cheating. Oh, that's cheater. what her mother told her the way she acted. But the father's really J. Jonah Jameson. Oh. And they never knew because they didn't want Jonah's first wife to know. So, Betty, oh, if Betty and John Jameson ever hook up, I'm going to have nightmares. <laughs> oh, God. It was like an episode that... of NCIS. Joe Orlando was currently the interior penciler on Daredevil, but I thought that Steve Ditko did a bang-up job portraying Daredevil's action in the story. I know that's going back a little bit to our conversation about the action earlier, but... Um... Steve Ditko was not the regular Daredevil artist, but I think he did a great job with Daredevil here. No, yeah, I, I agree. I, he kind of messed up with Foggy because that's, not, that's just not how Foggy's uh, yeah. description, the character description is. But uh, in terms of his physicality, I think he did very well. I really need to look at those early Daredevil issues to see how Foggy looked as of issue like one or two. Are you okay, <laughs> Michael? <laughs> no, I was just looking at something that I'll get to when we talk about the annual. It was, it just made me laugh. <laughs> this angle's you know, being hyped up here, folks. I'm looking at issue at issue two of Daredevil right now. Foggy's pretty slim. Yeah, I don't think they really started pumping him up until the average American weight went up. I think that um, you know, when Karen Page, his love for Karen Page, this unrequited love, drove him to eat <laughs> compulsively. That could very you well the, be. You think the same thing would apply to Matt once? Uh, was it Gloria Greenberg or something that, like left Matt for Foggy? You think the same thing would apply? I guess. He, well, 
Okay, I'm also looking at issue one. They drew him kind of fat in issue one, but in issue two, he's he's pretty slim. And that was Bill well, Everett they, in issue one. They changed they changed artists for issue two. That's Joe yeah. Orlando. I'm looking at Joe Orlando now in issue three, and I'm I'm, I'm tracking Foggy's weight. Yeah. Oh wow, Foggy's like downright <laughs> like Brad Pitt in issue three. Dang. They tried to like you know contrast him with Matt to explain why Matt was getting the girls like give a, a reason for Foggy not to be attractive to Karen. I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure out the reason why they might have stouted him up a bit. Speaking of some- Stan Lee and uh, you know ripping off himself, the whole Foggy Karen Matt love triangle that's pretty much Happy Pepper and Tony Stark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the that was that was the drama. That was the drama is that the two characters were in love with each other, but they could never admit it to each other because they were both afraid that the other doesn't love them and that it's not appropriate. Peter, Betty, and Ned. And it's, it's just, really? Why don't you just talk because you're adults? Yeah. You know? and it, it's it's, it, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, he was writing for an older audience, but not too much older. <laughs> so according to one of these letters, uh, you know, this uh, the, the, this woman and her husband buy every single Marvel comic published, and they think the fact that the communists are the are the bad guys makes it something that lets you uh, into in, insight on world affairs. And I'm like, really? <laughs> no, I have another uh, letter. Secretary wrote that that letter. So that thinking, would be so, like if they were having them fight Iraqis in the current issue. So yay for breeding nationalistic prejudice against communists and our young people. That's awesome. Because, you know, there, there are people at the chameleon out there, you know, changing into other people's faces and, you know, working for, working as a spy. Um, speaking of letters, I am. Uh, are we good with the book? Do we have any other thoughts on the book? I think Michael summed up pretty well. It's, just, it's, it's a really good team up in terms of it serves as a really good action piece. Not not very deep in building any mythology or anything. It's just it is what it is. Uh, it does its good. It does its job well. And of course, their last caption of the last page is Daredevil appears regularly in his own magazine. Yeah, I think it was bi-monthly at this point, but yeah. Um, so there were several letters that stood out to me. Um, I, I want to run through a few and feel free to jump in with any comments or if you have other letters that you want to add to the to the description. But um, Bill Payne did write in comparing the weight between Spider-Man issues to a nicotine fit. Okay. <laughs> kind of awesome because I think we can all agree that comic book fandom is pretty much an addiction. In certain terms, yes. yes. Uh, Jay Blackburn complained of the romance in Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. This is around the time of Sue and Reed's engagement. I don't remember exactly what issue they where that occurred, but they get married in next year's annual. And so while that's going on in the FF, you have Peter and Betty romance developing here. And I guess the boy readers just don't like mushy, girly stuff. Let's just stop reading Marvel then, because that's, that's all that is. Iron Man, Daredevil, Spider-Man, the Hulk with Betty Ross, right? Did, did the Avengers Jane Foster over in Thor. Yeah. It's all unrequited love. Uh, I'd, I'd like to strap some of these readers down and make them read a current issue of Spider-Man where he's, uh, he's having freaky <laughs> sex with a mask on. Show that to your five-year-old. Of course, then the next letter is from Gail Schottenstein and Phyllis Schwartz, and they want Peter to unmask so Betty and he can be closer together, which they should also read the Black Cat story now, because there ain't no unmasking going on there either. And clearly, you need the mask on for the, work, for the, for the magic to happen. Richard Weingroff appreciates the recognition that's been given to police officers and the role they have in law enforcement and criminal catching. And I have to say that I do kind of miss the police rooting for Spidey while Jameson mocks him. I kind of like that aspect of these early stories, and I really have no idea how long it's been absent from the books, but it would be nice to see it develop somehow, where Spider-Man actually has a cheering section in the crowds and the uh, public officials. Um, I, was, I was thinking that like I thought that the majority of the police... 
Except for when they actually do chase him, are kind of like, you know, eh, Spider-Man, eh, I don't think he's that bad of a guy. They're kind of like, kind of ambivalent towards it, not like vitriolic or intense at either side. <laughs> They're cops in New York City. The crap they see on a daily basis, some dude in a spider guys do, probably doesn't even pop up on their radar. To, to use your own <laughs> words, Mike, it would be Tuesday! The cliche in the, some of the Spider-Man stories is you'll have the old and bitter cop who hates Spider-Man and he'll be teamed with the rookie who, you know, who thinks that Spider-Man's just the bee's knees. Or sometimes they'll reverse it where the rookie thinks that Spider-Man's bad, but the old cop explains, oh, but you don't understand. Watch this. Amazing Spider-Man, Spider-Man 122. <laughs> I was thinking of 546 personally, but or no, the swing shift issue is what I was thinking of. That tells you everything right there. Swing shift? No, that the fact that like you guys both the, at the top of your head named two different issues from two different eras that did this trope. Okay, well, I just well, he's been a fugitive from the law for so long. I know that with the heroic age, that's been there's uh, some really like stupid like one off police gags and like the the issues from the seventies and eighties where like you get like useless like you know come on Joe okay uh, Murphy let's go and like there's like panels and panels and almost pages dedicated to characters you will never see again just because you know hey they're cops and like when we get to them in a few years we'll get well I'll I'll be sure to say it again I do have to say that um what would be really cool if it ever happened is I'm reading these letters and I mention them on the air and then one of these guys who's still alive and been reading comics all this time and just happens to listen to my show writes in and says, hey, I know that there's like a, a zillion to one chance against that series of events ever coinciding, but it'd be really cool. You got Stan Lee to reply, so. Mm-hmm. I got Stan Lee to reply. Actually, I, did. <laughs> I can take no credit there. Steve Wacker forwarded my email. Yeah, Stan Lee's not listening to this podcast. <laughs> you, got, you, you got friends in high places. I talked to Steve Wacker again this week. We ha- I had a random question to ask, and he actually wrote back a reply. It was kind of cool. Sure, he did. He did. He did. I say he did. <laughs> I'm playing. I'm playing. Uh, I say you. He did. <laughs> What's wrong with you? I say you. He I did. saw it with my own two eyes. Ads <laughs> for Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number One and Marvel Tales Annual Number One, both on the ad page and in the special announcements section of the letters column. Um, we are going to be talking about those annuals in the next episode. I know we've mentioned them a few times because we're actually recording it tonight, but you'll be waiting until I get that episode out before you get to hear about the annuals. Neener, neener, neener. Neener, neener, neener. This is also the time when Hulk was returning to his own strip. There's a second feature in Tales to Astonish will be happening very, very shortly after this time. There is a note. When, it's, when it gives the footnote about Ringmaster being from Hulk number three, it says now discontinued. Well, just like in a month or two from now, he'll be back in Tales to Astonish. So yay, Hulk. Drawn by Steve Ditko. Yes. <laughs> you not like that, Mike? I, I think Steve Ditko was the complete wrong choice for the Hulk. It was a while for me before that strip really took off. I, I had to read a, a lot of it before I was like, okay, now nah, this is starting to get good. The funny thing about that strip, though, is that when he finally figured out the, okay, if he gets really excited and his heart rate goes up, he turns into the Hulk. And uh, if he, his heart rate goes up again, he'll change back into Bruce Banner. He's Stanley's like, finally, I got something I can beat into the ground. <laughs> And that totally doesn't make any sense that he has to get excited for both changes. I, I like when they finally figure out that, no, 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 no. It's when he calms down that he becomes Bruce Banner. All Stanley knew was that he was drawing a woman named Betty. I mean, that he was writing dialogue for a woman named Betty drawn by Steve Ditko. Because if I recall from reading those issues <laughs> like years ago, Betty Ross got called Betty Brandt a few times. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I remember true. like once where Rick Jones was like giving her like a, a statement and he's like, is that all you need, Miss Brandt? This is the same guy who called his own creation Superman in issue three of his series. So I'm not doubting it at all. 
I do love the next issue box though, because it's like we can't tell you what next issue is because we have no freaking idea because we've been busy with the annual. Well, does it say? Does it say they'll bring back a new villain that you've never seen before, like they did with Doctor Octopus? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to bring it to a close right there. I want to thank Michael Bailey for being on the show with us. Hope you do check out his blog at fortressofbailey2.com for Superman goodness. Next episode, we will be covering the first Amazing Spider-Man annual featuring the Sinister Six. We're also going to spend some time talking about the Marvel Tales series as a whole and... I do want to apologize again for the lateness of these episodes. We just couldn't get them recorded very early in the month in time for production during June. However, in our heads, they do still count as the June episodes, and there will be a set of July episodes in addition to these. So we are still going to have, after the annual, three more episodes coming out later in the month and three more in August, and keep on going as usual. So please come back and see us again. If you want to comment on the show, if you want to send in your emails and your insults and anger at how totally politically incorrect and insensitive we were this episode, please feel free to do so at AmazingSpidermanClassics at gmail.com. There are plenty of images and fun comments at AmazingSpiderMan.Libson.com, as well as an X-Men blog, which I have not yet updated recently because I have been working on reviews for the Spider-Man homepage and, you know, on this show. But you can leave comments there. I appreciate when you do. We, even though we don't necessarily read those on the air, I do read them and appreciate them on that website. Also, if you want to follow news and updates, you can search for the group Amazing Spider-Man Classics on Facebook.com. And that brings us to another close. So keep a look on your iTunes in about a week for the next episode of Amazing Spider-Man Classics, episode number 12, wrapping up our time with Michael Bailey and featuring the crazy Aunt May and the Sinister Six. Thank you for listening to Amazing Spider-Man Classics. Good night. So, I had a Nora Winters pulled on me today. Someone lick, lick Somebody your licked you at so, work? Yeah. All right. Good job, Josh. Hey, hey. He works with children. I don't know if this is a good thing yet. Okay, sorry. He, uh, he, he being my wife, who's a she. So, ha- have any of you listened to the BBC Amazing Spider-Man series? There's a BBC Amazing Spider-Man one. series. 
the same guy, Dirk Maggs, that did the Superman Doomsday and Beyond and the Batman Nightfall audio adaptations yeah. did an amazing Spider-Man oh, yeah. one. Really? So, adapting something or an original story? Uh, I, loosely adapting like the first Essential, even though this was before the Essential. But basically, Ooh, really and, cool. and it's more of a, it's more, uh, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the origin, it sounds really cool. The origin, the origin has changed slightly, and uh, but you you basically have like the first like twenty or so issues of Amazing Spider-Man, but there's a lot of Fantastic Four in there as well, and the whole thing ends up being about the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and Submariner fighting Doctor Doom. Really. The only reason I I ask is that the next issues you're going to be covering after the ones we talk about tonight, that um, party. That uh that that club meeting of Spider-Man is adapted in the thing, and it's pretty god awful. But it is where <laughs> you get to hear Liz Allen say the words, "Wow, dropping out of school really did did you well, didn't it, Betty?" So, <laughs> oh, I'm going to switch really quickly from my laptop to my desk. I mean, from my desktop to my laptop. So, um, Mike, real quick. I was just curious if you've had, if you've heard anything from Superman 700, if you've read it, if you had any opinion on that at all. Oh Jesus Christ! Yeah, he's walking the earth like came from Kung Fu. Oh, that um, sounds really freaking awful, actually. Speaking of which, yeah, you're still scaring small children. I was oh, driving the good. other week playing podcast, and when John Wilson mentioned the name Michael Bailey, one of the kids like just sat up and started screaming. <laughs> what? I have the facial hair, which tends to scare people. I can't shave because my wife gives me too much of a hard time, and I don't grow a beard because uh, I look like, you know, I should be coming up to your door. And Yeah, according to Megan's Law, I gotta tell you, I live down the road from you, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay, he says, hang on, he just switched comps again. Now he's back. back. Okay. How many well, times is he gonna switch? <laughs> no, really, well, I'm, going under my, I'm, going, I'm going under my neighbor's laptop now, so you're gonna see how that works. This is the freaking Oracle uh, clock tower. Puberty hit me wow. hard, and it hit me in the middle of a podcast, you know? You know you're not a real wasp, right? I don't think she does, and she gets upset <laughs> when you try to suggest otherwise, so you gotta leave it alone. And on the t- on that note of domestic violence, we're going to talk about my daughter, Lily, now. Oh my god. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> wow. I thought I, like, had the worst, the worst transition ever when I talked about <laughs> dead mother and then had to get back talking into comic books. You take the cake, sir. Congratulations. I'm not sure if that's an award I should be proud of, but... <laughs> Should we do the, the uh, obligatory domestic violence is not a laughing matter comment? Nah. nah. Hi, I'm Joshua Lappin Bertoni, and I'm a <laughs> podcaster. Sometimes I like to have fun, but I'm here to talk about something that's not that funny. Domestic violence. It affects <laughs> over 3,000 fake comic book women a year, and we need to put a stop to it. If you know a comic book woman character who's being abused by her husband, or by her scientist husband, don't be quiet. <laughs> I'm done. This, this, <laughs> We're going to get so much hate Somebody mail. turn off Josh. Somebody turn him off. <laughs> Billy, shut up and make me some dinner before I punch you again. <laughs> okay, so now oh, we've fully set the record straight on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, do we have any other thoughts on this story? I was going to talk just a little bit about the rest of the book, but not much. Uh, but I don't want to do that until we have a, cleared our systems of domestic yeah. abuse. Not yet. <laughs> In the words of Britney Spears, uh, I, I give me baby one more time. 
I think we've beaten the domestic abuse humor into the ground. So. <laughs> and there shall stay a bloody pulp. <laughs>